bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 18th, 2017. Today is tax day, the deadline to file 2016 individual tax returns, or more likely, if you haven't already filed, to extend your return. As you may know, the due date for filing taxes was delayed beyond April 15th because the 15th was a Saturday and the 16th was a Sunday. And then Monday, April 17th, is the District of Columbia's Emancipation Day, a holiday commemorating the date in 1862 when President Lincoln signed legislation to free slaves in the district. So, today, April 18th, became tax day for 2017. So, in case you're wondering, next year, tax day will be Tuesday, April 17th, 2018, and in 2019, tax day will be April 15th, a Monday. Now, looking back in history today, nine years ago, President George W. Bush nominated Steve Preston to serve as the 14th Secretary of HUD. Preston was the former head of the U.S. Small Business Administration. The nomination, though, was criticized for Preston's lack of housing policy experience. Bush, though, defended his choice by touting Preston's experience with finance due in light of the unfolding housing crisis. Preston was confirmed by the Senate unanimously that same June, and Preston served as Secretary of HUD from 2008 to 2009, the period that included some major economic legislation. There was the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, or HERA 2008, which, by the way, included a package of enhancements to the low-income housing tax credit. There was also the Economic Stabilization Act of 2008 and the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP. That time period also brought us the government takeovers of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as well as an expansion of FHA financing. Now, nine years later, we can see some interesting similarities. New HUD Secretary Ben Carson also faced opposition during his confirmation process about his lack of experience. And as we look at major legislation, not the least of which is tax reform and infrastructure, we can see the potential for once again including a package of enhancements to the low-income housing tax credit. And major changes to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac may also be coming. Now, let's turn to this week's tax credit news. We have a great podcast for you this week with some very interesting developments in several areas. I'll start by reviewing the latest efforts to enact tax reform and the major stumbling blocks that are currently preventing it from moving forward. I also have a short update on the status of funding the federal government, as the continued resolution expires at the end of next week, April 28th to be exact. In local housing tax credit news, HUD has released the fiscal year 2017 income limits. My partner, Thomas Stagg, is analyzing the data, but I do have some initial observations to share with you. The news is generally good, though not as good as many would like it to be. I'll also discuss recent report findings by HUD, findings that the low-income housing tax credit does indeed serve the individuals and families who are most in need of affordable housing. After that, I'll share some insights 
from our newest edition of the Novogratic Multifamily Rental Housing Operating Expense Report. It's a report that we prepare every year that analyzes operating expense data from a number of properties that we audit. I'll also close out with new markets tax credit news. Efforts are ongoing in California to create a state new markets tax credit. I'll share where those efforts stand today. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, on the tax reform front, President Donald Trump has continued to trumpet his desire to repeal and replace Obamacare before tackling tax reform. This comes to us from many sources, including public comments Trump made in an interview with Fox Business Network. Trump told Fox, and I quote, Health care is going to happen at some point. And if it doesn't happen fast enough, I'll start the taxes. But the tax reform and the tax cuts are better if I can do health care first. Close quote. Repealing Obamacare first was one of Trump's campaign promises when he was running for office. However, a health care bill pinned by the House GOP leaders had to be pulled from the floor last month because it lacked the votes to pass. And some thought that the issue would be tabled. But it wasn't, or at least not completely tabled. House Speaker Paul Ryan did tell reporters earlier this month that a new health care plan is being drafted by the White House. And I do know that there have been ongoing discussions between House GOP leaders and the Freedom Caucus. Now, whether the second pass at enacting health care reform, starting in the presidency, gains any traction remains to be seen. Speaker Ryan has said that he wants to rely on Republican votes, as opposed to Democratic votes, to pass a health care bill in the House. So the bill would need it to appeal to both conservative and moderate House Republicans. Not to mention, they'll need to also win over 50 of their 52 Republican colleagues in the Senate. As the first few months of this Congress have shown, that's much easier said than actually done. Healthcare, though, isn't the only matter complicating tax reform. The bigger hurdle is the lack of consensus within the Republican Party. The White House does seem intent on taking a more assertive lead on tax reform than it initially did with health care reform. And the administration has said for weeks that it would release a detailed tax plan, but that has yet to happen. Also, Trump is considering linking tax reform with an infrastructure plan. I'm not sure it'll happen, but there is discussion. Also, Speaker Ryan and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell are not supportive of doing tax reform and infrastructure together. Meanwhile, on the Hill, Republican leaders in the Senate are now reportedly considering working on their own tax plan. Senate Republicans would like to wait and see what the House and or the President suggest, but they do acknowledge they may not be able to wait and may need to take the lead. And a hot topic in the Senate does continue to be the border adjustment tax. Senate Majority Leader McConnell said last month that the upper chamber has no enthusiasm for passing a border adjustment tax. That's a tax that would exempt exports, but tax imports. The border adjustment tax, as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, is a core component of the tax blueprint that the House GOP leaders released last year, entitled A Better Way. The Tax Policy Center estimates that that provision would raise $1.2 trillion over 10 years, which helps offset the cost of other blueprint provisions. Obviously, there are many, many, many moving parts, all that have to align before tax reform could move forward. 
while Trump is reluctant to place a new time frame for enacting tax reform, Majority Leader McConnell did say that tax reform could be passed and, quote, hopefully, by the end of the year. In case you are wondering, I continue to believe that some form of a down payment of tax reform will pass Congress, likely late in the calendar year, with a top corporate rate of somewhere between 28 to 25 percent and a lowering of individual tax rates as well. I say this in part because there's no doubt that Republicans are hoping to notch a victory with tax reform before the midterm elections in November 2018. That's when all 435 seats in the House and a third of the seats in the Senate will be contested. Now, I'll continue to share the latest updates on tax reform with you on Twitter. You can follow me. My handle is at Novogratik. I also do want to provide a quick update on the continued resolution that expires April 28th, a week from this Friday. Congress is supposedly considering a one-week extension of the continued resolution to give lawmakers enough time to negotiate fiscal year 2017 spending bills. I'll tweet more about that as details become available. And also, I'll report back on the status of that in next week's podcast. In affordable housing news, last week, HUD released, finally, the income limits for fiscal year 2017. Overall, it was a very good year for income limits. 83.7% of the country saw increases, while 15.5% of the country saw decreases and about 0.7% had no change. However, the news is not as rosy when you factor in the hold harmless rule. That means that of the 83.7% of the country that saw increases, that increase in income may not have raised the area income above its previous high for a given property, in which case its hold harmless income level is unchanged. To assess the hold harmless effect, my partner Thomas Stagg has prepared some calculations and they assume that January 1, 2009 or earlier was the date a property was placed in service. Now these results have generally varied depending upon the placement service date of each property, so that's my uh, caveat. But factoring in this 1-1-2009 hold harmless date, the unweighted average increase across all areas was 1.7%. Now we're still calculating, but I do believe the population weighted increase would be notably higher than the 1.7%. That said, about 51.4% of areas saw an increase at all. So once again, 51.4% of areas saw an increase in income above their hold harmless limits. The balance of the areas saw no increase in income, and because of the hold harmless rule, there's no decrease. Now, I did note earlier the 1.7% increase in incomes across all areas. Well, if you look at just the 51.4% of areas that actually saw an increase at all, their incomes averaged 3.9% on an unweighted basis, an increase of 3.9% on an unweighted basis. Once again, we do believe the population weighted increase will be much higher, and we'll report on that in a future blog post. So even though income limits are moving in the right direction, income limits will still be flat for many projects in the country. So as you probably know, you can find all the income limits at www.taxcredithousing.com. We will be updating our rent and income limit calculator with the new figures. I'll be sure to let you know when that happens. I'd also encourage you to periodically check out our notes from the Novocodic blog at www.novocodic.com blog. 
as we will be publishing additional analysis there. If you'd like a review of the effects of these income limits on your portfolio of properties, please reach out to Thomas Stagg in our Seattle Metro office. He is an excellent resource on analyzing the impact of these income limits and what they might tell you as to what to expect in future years in a given area. And I'll also note we are going to host a webinar on these income limits and the insights that can be drawn from them. The webinar will be on May 4th, and you can go online now and register. In other affordable housing news, HUD last week published its annual report on tenants in low-income housing tax credit properties. The most recent report contains information on tenants through the end of 2014. This includes demographic and economic data. HUD reports that the median household income for low-income housing tax credit property residents was just over $17,000, which is exactly the same as the previous year. By comparison, the national median in 2014 was $53,000. In other words, residents of low-income housing tax credit properties in 2014 earned one-third of the national median income. The report also found that 47% of low-income housing tenants were extremely low income, which means they earned 30% or less of the area median income. About 44% of low-income housing tax credit households paid more than 30% of their income for rent, meaning they're rent burdened. And nearly 10% of households had at least one member who's disabled. This HUD report is the third of its kind, and it's mandated by the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, or HERA. HUD gathered data on more than 1.9 million units across more than 36,000 properties. You can read the report at www.taxcredithousing.com. And in other news, Novigrad & Company has published its fourth annual edition of our Multifamily Rental Housing Operating Expense Report. This OPEX report categorizes expenses for multifamily rental housing properties over time. The report breaks down expenses by type, location, property size, and other discerning factors. Now, the newest edition adds data from 2015 for more than 1,400 properties, and they include more than 170,000 individual units. In the OPEX report, you can see comparisons about how much costs are to operate senior and family properties, new construction, ACK rehab developments, small and large properties, and more. Blair Kenser, a partner of mine in our Metro Washington, D.C. office, is the principal author, and he has written a couple blog posts about it. One of the blog posts addresses the gap between expenses for ACK rehab properties and new construction properties. Another highlights some significant changes in this year's statistics and possible reasons for them. You can see the blog posts at www.novaco.com blog. Also, you can order your copy of the Operating Expense Report from our website at www.novaco.com. The report is entitled the Novogradic Multifamily Rental Housing Operating Expense Report. And I'd like to note that if you're an owner or investor in low-income housing tax properties, my partner Blair is also available to prepare a customized report comparing our analysis to your properties. You can reach out to him in our Metro Washington, D.C. office. In New Markets Tax Credit news, I have an exciting update out of California. A bill was reintroduced last month that would create a state New Markets Tax Credit program. Now, businesses would be eligible for California New Markets Tax Credit financing for taxable years from 2018 
through 2022. The program would be administered by the responsible tax credit administrator. Who is that? Well, that would be appointed by the governor. The state program would have a $40 million annual cap. In many ways, the state credit would be much like its federal counterpart. The program would provide a credit equal to 39% of the total qualified equity investment and would be claimed over seven years. But unlike the federal program, the California New Market Tax Credit Program would have different applicable percentages. The applicable percentage in years one and two would be zero, so no credits would be claimed in years one and two. But in year three, it would be 7%, and in year four through year seven, it would be 8% a year. Now, 14 states have adopted a state New Market Tax Credit Program, including neighboring states Oregon and Nevada. One reason the bill cites for establishing state-level programs is to make a state more attractive to community development entities. This increases the amount of federal new market tax credits that are attracted to a given state. If you'd like to read the bill, it's Assembly Bill 1715, and we do have it on our website at www.newmarketscredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I would like to invite you to join me in San Francisco next month. We have two exciting Novogratic conferences. The first is the Novogratic Renewable Energy Financing Tax Credit Conference. That's going to be on May 4th and 5th. Following, two weeks later, we'll have the Novogratic Affordable Housing Conference, May 18th and 19th, focusing on the local housing tax credit and taxes and bond financing. You can register at www.novaco.com events, and I do look forward to seeing you there. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratic and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.